Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economic. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 to 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money from the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35,000 of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisoners in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March what? Who cares? Marching has never changed anything. Yo, is let's do this.
You don't know me, fool. You disown me, cool. I don't need your assistance, social persistence. Any problem I got, I just put my fist in. My life is violent, but violent is life. Peace is a dream, reality is a night. My colors, my honor, my colors, my all. With my colors upon me, one soldier stands tall. Tell me, what have you left me? What have I got? Last night in cold blood, my young brother got shot. My homeboy got jacked, my mother's on crack. My sister can't work cause her arms show track. Madness, insanity, living profanity. Then some punk claiming they're understanding me. Give me a break, what world do you live in? Death is my set, guess my religion. Come, 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 come. My pants are sagging, braided hair. Suckers there, but I don't care. My game ain't knowledge, my game fear. I've no remorse, so squares beware. But my two missions is just revenge. You ain't my set, you ain't my friend. Wear the wrong color, your life could end. Homicide's my favorite binge color. People say your dreams are crazy. If they laugh at what you think you can do. Good. Stay that way. Because what non-believers fail to understand is that calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. 
Don't try to be the fastest runner in your school or the fastest in the world. Be the fastest ever. Don't picture yourself wearing OBJ's jersey. Picture OBJ wearing yours. Don't settle for homecoming queen or linebacker. Do both. Lose 120 pounds and become an Ironman after beating a brain tumor. Don't believe you have to be like anybody to be somebody. If you're born a refugee, don't let it stop you from playing soccer for the national team at age 16. Don't become the best basketball player on the planet. Be bigger than basketball. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. When they talk about the greatest team in the history of the sport, make sure it's your team. If you have only one hand, don't just watch football. Play it at the highest level. And if you're a girl from Compton, don't just become a tennis player. Become the greatest athlete ever. Yeah, that's more like it. So don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. Many a young athlete entertains hoop dreams. Few, if any, have tried as hard to make them come true as the kid our Steve Hartman has gone to see. Every week, he set himself up for disappointment. Every week, 13-year-old Jamarian Stiles came to this community center in Boca Raton, Florida, hoping to play basketball with the other kids. And every week, he was rejected. They'll start picking teams, and I will be the only one left out. And then they'll just tell me, just go home and stuff. You can break someone's heart like that. The problem was obvious to everyone but Jamarion. He lost his hands and most of his arms as an infant due to a rare bacterial infection. But he insisted that was no reason to give up his hoop dreams. What about soccer? Have you heard of that sport? Yeah, hear it every day. Why don't you play soccer? That just seems like the obvious thing. You would think that I would be good at soccer. I'm really not. I'm horrible. <laughs> Which is why, on the first day of class here at Eagles Landing Middle School, Jamarian took his case to basketball coach Darian Williams. Yeah. Said he wanted to be on the team this year. I said, all great, well, just make sure you try out. But he said, okay, great, but what are you really thinking? <laughs> this man has no arms. Yeah. How is he going to play basketball? But, man, he told me, Mr. Williams, I've never been on a team before. Even if I don't play, I just want to be on the team. And how could I say no to that? And that's how the Eagles got their first armless basketball player. Jamarian, number two there, quickly earned a reputation as the hardest worker on the squad. He was usually the first one in the gym, usually the last one to leave. Still, he sat on the bench most of the season. Try one more. Until last month. Coach put him in the game with about six minutes left. And when he eventually got the ball on the far side of the court, everyone yelled, shoot it. So he did and sank a three-pointer. And if you didn't quite see that, don't worry, because shortly after, he got the ball again, this time on the near side, for another three-pointer. At the buzzer. Jamarian Stiles, the kid no one would pick, was now everyone's hero. 
Needless to say, today, Jamarian can play all he wants at the community center. He just made the volleyball team and has every intention of playing football next year. Really, the only thing he won't play is the victim. If I could wave a magic wand right now and give you your arms back, would you want them? I don't need them. <laughs> you don't need them? No. Nope. Who needs hands when you've got this kind of touch? Doesn't play the victim. I, I, I like that piece. Anyway, today's It's My House is titled From Janitor to Billionaire, From Janitor to Billionaire, John Barfield, unregulated. John Barfield, who passed into the next phase of existence earlier this year. African-American, he, he did just that. He went from a janitor to a billionaire. And we'll explain the unregulated part uh, a little bit later. Anyway, let's listen to our audio about him. Welcome to American Black Journal. I'm Stephen Henderson. When we think of African-American entrepreneurs in the Detroit area, one of the first that comes to mind is John Barfield. He founded what is now the Bartech Group, a global supplier of workforce management and staffing solutions. The story of John Barfield's rise to success is told in a new book titled Starting from Scratch, the humble beginnings of a $2 billion enterprise. A documentary on Barfield's life will debut on Monday during a Michigan Minority Business Week event at the Charles H. Wright Museum. I started out to do something that would benefit my family. And as a result of many good fortunes and many wonderful people that I've met along the way. I have, rem I have been able to provide my family with educations and experiences that I never had. In a country in an era riven by racial oppression and struggle, it's impossible to find a single person who can embody those times. But there is one man who comes close, John W. Barfield born to poor southern sharecroppers, who went on to build a billion-dollar international business, a family business. John Barfield is a really impressive serial entrepreneur. I mean, he's got deep entrepreneurial genes in him. You know, here's a guy who had a newspaper route. He was a door-to-door -door salesman. He worked as a janitor. He's an irrepressible presence that has to succeed at entrepreneurial ventures. Businessmen are made. Entrepreneurs are born. And if you bring this back to John Barfield, he's an entrepreneur. He was born entrepreneur. He's a gentle soul, but he um, has the eye of the tiger. He uh, is truly the American dream. father was an extraordinary man. He was big and a powerful physique and was maybe the kindest person I've ever known. He was too kind to even spank my sister and I. Uh, that was a job that my mother had to do. They, they taught us a lot of principles and I've been asked why, why they taught you these principles. That these were principles that were designed to protect us from God and man. 
living in the South where we did, you could be lynched for nothing. We thought that Pennsylvania would be better, but we found that Pennsylvania, for my folks, was almost as, as bad. My father had to work almost as hard as hard as he did in the South. Some blues are just blues, mine are the miners blues. It was not the best lifestyle. Most of the coal mines paid you in script. You know, they're working 12, 14 hour days, and sometimes more than that. The life expectancy wasn't very high. There were deaths on a daily basis in most of these mines. Uh, it was probably the harshest of all the industries. I'm pleased to have John Barfield as my guest today. Welcome to American Black Journal. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, like many great success stories, uh, yours has very humble beginnings. Uh, born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama in 1927. But you, we were talking before the show uh, started, and you were telling me about being a janitor at the University of Michigan in 1949 and deciding from there to leave to start your own business. I want to start the interview there. Talk to me about what it was that that uh, that it led you to make that decision and made you think this will turn out to be better than than what I'm doing. Well, I left high school after the 10th grade. I was 16 years old, and uh, when I became 17 years old, I joined the U.S. Army, and I served for two years in Germany and France, and came back to this country without any skills. So I applied for a job at the University of Michigan as a wall washer. And at the end of the wall washing period, I was one of the people there that was offered a job as a custodian. Uh -huh. And I worked from 1949 to 1954 uh, as a janitor in the chemistry building. I left that job uh, in 1954, uh, but uh, the, the, the way I left it was uh, I had to find more income because my family was growing sure. and I noticed that they were building a number of homes on the west side of Ann Arbor so I went to the builders and I said uh, my name is John Barfield uh, I, I'd like to clean your houses for you I can do them better cheaper and and uh, and and uh, on, on time uh, would you give me an opportunity and they did and I made an amazing discovery that discovery was that I could clean two small homes in a day and I was paid $35 for each. So I was able to make as much in one day working for myself as I could in a whole week working for the <laughs> working university. Working for the university, right. So that's when I decided to leave the university and to become an entrepreneur. Yeah, but, but this is also a time when uh, African Americans weren't assumed to be able to, to manage companies, to build companies. Uh, Tell me about some of the resistance uh, that, that you encountered early on and, and sort of how you navigated around it. Well, you're true. It, it was a, a time when African-American women were thought not to be able to handle complex, uh, uh, profitable, large opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and it took a while before uh, people gave me an opportunity. But I stayed with the university, and then <clears throat> when I left in 1954, I wrote a book called The Barfield Method of Building Maintenance, and I started cleaning commercial and industrial buildings. And 13 years after I left the University of Michigan, uh, I was uh, 
uh, met by a number of large corporations. There were Consolidated uh, Foods, Mackey Corporation, the Senators Corporation, International Telephone, all wanting to buy my business. So I sold the business in 1969 to IT&T for one of the largest multiples that they'd ever paid at that time for a contract cleaning service. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and how do you get from there to the Barfield Group? Uh, well, the Bartech Group, I should say. In 1975, I got a call from the General Motors Corporation asking me would I be interested in coming out. They had a proposal for me. So I went out to the hydromatic plant uh, there, and, and the, they, they said, would you help us find minorities and women that we could buy goods and services from? That was right after the boycott. Yeah. And I think our leaders went to the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the large corporations that we, we buy your goods and services, but you don't give us time. You don't, buy, you don't give us any options. Sure. Unless you change that, we're going to boycott. And that's what started this minority business development program. So after a year of looking, we found only one African-American, and his business was uh, selling corrugated boxes back to the corporations. And that's when they said, uh, John, we have, a, we have a proposal for you. Uh, we'd like for you to uh, clean up some old engineering drawings for us, and if you can uh, do this to our satisfaction uh, in six months, uh, we'll continue to give you opportunities. And that was the beginning of the Bartek Group. Uh, we started that company with six students from Washtenaw Community College, and today that company has grown to over 3,000 employees. Wow, wow. Uh, so, I mean, as I said in the open, I mean, uh, you can't talk about business or black business in Detroit without talking about you and the things that, that you have done. Uh, it's been a long time for you, though, I mean, that, that, you've been, that you've been at this, and you've seen a lot of change mm -hmm. uh, over that time in the city, in business. Uh, what, what do you see today as the things that, that uh, are either opportunities uh, for African-Americans who want to start their own businesses or things that are still obstacles? Well, I, I, I don't see a lot of uh, intelligent effort going on to start black businesses. Interestingly enough, I was uh, asked by the Detroit public school system to come up with an idea uh -huh. of how we could create more black businesses, particularly with the students attending uh, 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 high schools. And I met with them the other day uh, and gave them an idea of embedding an entrepreneurial training program at every high school in the city of, uh, in the city of, of Detroit. Yeah. Um, we really have to do a better job of providing opportunities for our young people. And, and we don't, I mean, schools in general are not teaching kids to be entrepreneurs. I mean, they, they are really uh, geared toward, you know, sending kids into careers, I think. Mm -hmm. And there's not that much focus on the idea that, uh, well, maybe you could, you could start your own thing and sort of control your own destiny. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think has held us back as a people is we have not realized the true value of our time and our talents. And that's what started me off on my road to success. Yeah. Uh, we think that uh, we don't realize sometimes the difference between ordinary income and meaningful wealth. Uh, what we have to begin to teach our people is that uh, it, it's not about ordinary income. The whole purpose of working is to create wealth. Uh, 
for yourself yeah, for yourself. <laughs> and your family. And, right. uh, and, and until we learn to do that, we, we will not have the success we, we're looking for. And, and what are some of the things that, that you have to think of uh, when you're doing that? I mean, what are the practical things that you need to teach kids uh, when they're teenagers or in high school that lead them to, to thinking that way? Well, let me give you an example. <clears throat> I worked for the university for six years. And at the end of the sixth year, I was making $70 a week. Uh, then I, I started my own business, and, uh, and then I left the university. But if I had worked for the University of Michigan for 14 more years, it would have total, been a total of 20 years. And if I had gotten a 5% increase for each one of those 14 years, at the end of a 20-year career, I would have been making $8,000 a year, right. which would not have been enough to provide the education for my children. So I would have been trapped. I would not have made any progress myself, and my children would not have made any progress. Sure. As a result of leaving, I was able to send my children to good schools. I was able to buy a nice home for my family, and I was able to enjoy some of the amenities that we all hope and pray to have. If I had continued to work for the university, none of that would have happened. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we have to uh, learn uh, that we have only so many hours in a lifetime to work. And uh, if you spend all of that time uh, working as an employee of others, uh, you will create ordinary wealth, but you won't create meaningful, in, me, meaningful wealth. Yeah. And that's what we should be working toward. I mean, at the same time, uh, if you're someone who has that job, that, that job that has a, a steady paycheck mm -hmm. and seems to promise uh, opportunity for growth, it's, it can be scary to, to say, well, I'll give this up uh, in favor of something that, that is, is riskier and maybe, maybe it'll work, but maybe it'll pay me less. Uh, how, do you, how do you get people to overcome that? Well, you, you, you had to be very careful. A, a lot of people are encouraging people to quit their biz jobs and to become entrepreneurs, full-time entrepreneurs. We think that's very dangerous because most new business ventures they fail, fail. Right? They fail. So we encourage people not to do that, but to become part-time entrepreneurs. Uh, Find something that you can do yes. while you're still working. Yes. For example, if you were a skilled worker and, uh, and you made uh, uh, 20, $20, $25 an hour uh, and you worked for a corporation that paid you that, um, you should realize that I'm worth more than that. Really, what I'm worth is what my boss charges for my time. <laughs> right, right. So we try to encourage people to start their own businesses on a part-time basis, uh, to become, if you will, a, a company of one. Yeah. To work full-time, but to w spend some of your time working part-time. And when you do that, you have to realize how to charge for your services. For example, if I'm a, a skilled worker and I make $30 an hour, uh, I have to realize that my employer marks my time up 150 percent sure. or more, and he gets the he gets the the difference between what he pays us and what he charges his other uh, customers, sure. and that's how he builds wealth. At the same time, the people that are providing that opportunity for him build no wealth at all. Yeah. Yeah. So we try to get people to work for themselves yeah. on a part-time basis. Sure. Uh, we've got about a minute left. Uh, tell me about one thing that you say or would say to young people. I mean, looking back on your life and your uh, career, if you had one piece of advice for young people to, to sort of follow in that path or, or to forge a different path that, that, that would be equally successful, what would that, what would that one thing be? 
I would say to you that the only way that you can find the path to wealth is to realize the value of your time and your talents. That's when you can begin to move forward. Yeah. Uh, not to rely on other people to tell you what you're worth, but to realize uh, your value yourself. Uh, and, uh, and to have the confidence to do that. To that's, move forward. That's one to of the real forward. hurdles, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's not hard to be successful when you realize how valuable you are. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, wonderful uh, advice, and congratulations on uh, all your success and on the documentary. Well, thank you very much. I'm very proud of the book, and I think it was written with humility and deference, and I think there's some good principles and some good lessons, and I hope more people will read it. Yeah. May I have a minute to say one other thing? Sure. Uh, Forty years ago, I made a... A, a, a pledge to our Rotary Club in Ypsilanti uh, to raise enough money to provide vaccinations for a million African children uh -huh. from polio. Uh -huh. uh, after two years, uh, we had not, we did not reach our goal, but we did uh, raise enough money to vaccinate 497,000 African children. Wow! So I went to the Rotary Foundation a year ago, and I said, if you will endorse my book to your 1.2 million members. I'll give you $15 of the price back for every $27 book that you sell. Uh, my goal is and my hope is that they will sell 5% of, uh, of uh, their rotaries uh, will purchase a book. Yeah. And if they do, it would provide uh, about $900,000 that would be used to provide polio vaccinations for, for African, children. African children. Wow. So wow. that's my goal. That's, a, that's an outstanding goal. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for being here. I'm pleased to be here. All right, you were listening to John W. Barfield. He made transition earlier this year, but um, today's podcast is titled From Janitor to Billionaire, John Barfield Unregulated. And um, he has a book out, which you can um, – I got a sample of it on my phone. I'm going to purchase it probably right after this podcast, if not during the podcast. But uh, the book is titled Starting from Scratch. And so here's a guy, African-American. He's a janitor, working a job as a janitor, a job that many people would turn down. But he turned that job um or the skill set he got from that job into a business. And um it's simple it's a simple thing too. He I mean he he was working the job as a janitor. Then he picked up he was looking for some extra money because his family was growing, so he was doing basically cleaning houses on the side. So one day he cleaned one day he cleaned two houses in one day, and he earned more in that one day than he earned on his regular job for a week, or at least a paper or something like that, probably. And he went from there to uh, growing that business. I believe it was like it was like seventy bucks. So he got seventy dollars from those two jobs in a day, and that was more than his regular paycheck job. Um, for a week or something like that, or paper, or at least a week. So from there he, so he went from seventy dollars 
for just two jobs in the day, two houses, to a $2 billion company. Sold that, and now he's got, you know, he although he made transition, and I'm pretty sure he left a legacy behind of generational wealth to his chick, because I think he's got like, he and his wife had like five or six kids. Now, in any event, we're going to come back to him a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, we're going to replay what I'll probably start playing every day. This is um, Colin Kaepernick has um, got a commercial with Nike, and I think it's pretty inspirational. I, I call it Are You Crazy Enough, um, which you can apply to different things in life. If people say your dreams are crazy, if they laugh at what you think you can do, good. Stay that way. Because what non-believers fail to understand is that calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. Don't try to be the fastest runner in your school or the fastest in the world. Be the fastest ever. Don't picture yourself wearing OBJ's jersey. Picture OBJ wearing yours. Don't settle for homecoming queen or linebacker. Do both. Lose 120 pounds and become an Ironman after beating a brain tumor. Don't believe you have to be like anybody to be somebody. If you're born a refugee, don't let it stop you from playing soccer for the national team at age 16. Don't become the best basketball player on the planet. Be bigger than basketball. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. When they talk about the greatest team in the history of the sport, make sure it's your team. If you have only one hand, don't just watch football. Play it at the highest level. And if you're a girl from Compton, don't just become a tennis player. Become the greatest athlete ever. Yeah, that's more like it. So don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. Yeah, we'll put that in a daily rotation along with Clone Anderson. Uh, are, you know, so are your dreams, visions, crazy enough? Uh, let's see. Before we get back to John W. Barfield, the guy who uh, I'm going to retitle his book, From $70 to $2 billion, because that's what he did. Two, 70 bucks from two cleaning jobs in a day. And then he grew that, that side hustle, that side business into a $2 billion company. And um, he later sold it, and then he started the, the Bartech Group, which uh, is still in business. I think it's probably still listed on, on Black Enterprise. Uh the next audio before we get back to to uh Barfield. Um 
there's this young man out of, I think, St. Louis, that he uh, started, um, he started a company and became a millionaire as a teenager, black black kid, black young, well, I guess he's a young man now. But um, I'm trying to find his uh, audio in here, but I worry about there's kind of, uh, well, anyway, while I'm looking for that, um, like I mentioned today's podcast so from January to Billionaire, John Barfield, unregulated. Uh, for people that are looking for business opportunities, or what they should go into. The reason why I put at the John Barfield's name unregulated, if you look at Mark Zuckerberg, how could a guy you know, I mean, become a multi-billionaire before 30, Bill Gates become a billionaire before 30, uh, how could a guy go from janitor to billionaire uh, in, in case of uh, Barfield or many of the former slaves that became wealthy during the Jim Crow era time, the common denominator that I'm noticing in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, is that these people get into a field and then get into a field that basically has little or no government regulation. If you want to open up a bank, regulations out the yin-yang. Matter of fact, if you want to get into any, in the United States at least, if you want to get into any uh, lending situation, loan, lending of money, um, be it a um, what do you have out there now? Um, commercial bank. Uh, I don't know if they have any more savings and loans. Um, credit unions. Uh, anything dealing with stock, the stock market. Those insurance. Those are heavily regulated industries. Even so, it's difficult to get into those and really prosper. Uh, due to the government regulation on the local, state, and federal level. Uh, it's easier, and that's what a lot of people, you know, like a lot of people that, that were pioneers to protect their piece of the pie in the industry, you know, they get these rules and regulations in, which makes it more difficult for a new person to enter into that particular market that they're in. Now, if you take uh, the, some of the companies I just named, um, the people I just named, Mark Zuckerberg, how, how did this guy become a millionaire, I mean billionaire, multi-billionaire, before 30, same as Bill Gates? Well, essentially, I mean, Facebook's a glorified website. Now, they're on the New York market, I mean, stock exchange now. But before that, he was he, he was wealthy. Facebook is nothing more than really a glorified website. That's all it is. So anybody, essentially, you can be an axe murderer and start up a website. 
You know, you got two to five bucks. You know, two bucks, you can reserve the domain name in most cases. And you can get something online. Matter of fact, these days, you can probably get a, you can sell a lot of stuff for free. So starting a website as we speak now in 2018 going to the, it is basically, I would say there's no government regulation. Easy to get into. Super easy to get into. And if you you learn how to work it right, you can earn a substantial amount of income through starting the various type of websites that are out there. Um, Bill Gates, you know, software, there, there might be some regulation on it, but I, I doubt if it, it's not overbearing. You know, uh, Microsoft, you know, it, it, software company, computer software. Um and the governments haven't figured out how to really regulate it yet. Uh, so John Barfield, he got into the cleaning business, which then, and probably even so now, really isn't, I mean, it's not, you know, I haven't heard anybody get arrested or go before a Senate committee on cleaning toilets or environmental services. So he got into something where, you know, the government really wasn't all up in it. And, you know, a lot of people that's, you know, talk about, you know, particularly when it comes to black folk in America, we can't get into this, we can't get into that, and white supremacy, this white supremacy. No, look, here's, here's the real deal. Stop trying to get in on a platform that's heavily regulated by the government. Look for, and this is any in any country that you go to, because there's a gang of people I know that they like going to Brazil. You go to Brazil, and if you try to get into a heavily regulated industry in Brazil or anywhere in the world, it's going to be difficult to prosper in that particular industry. So, Barfield, John W. Barfield, he he got into um, cleaning home, you know. He started, uh, he took his job and turned it into a business. And that business had, probably when he did it, was probably no regulation. Maybe get a pet list license. Or if it wasn't, um, later on he probably got one. You know, as, as his income, you know, grew bigger. But that's that's what I would recommend. Look, look, look at industries. And they might even not be they might not even be called industries right now. You know, a lot of people that are tinkerers or a hobbyist, you know, someday that hobby might turn into an industry. But tip but that's that's the only consistent thing I've seen for people who reach the billionaire status. They got into something that had little or no government regulation at the time they got into it. Even when it comes to, um, because as your company grows, you're going to need workers. All right, so since slavery has been abolished in the United States and most Western countries, although a lot of them, it it still exists in different forms. Um, you've had a lot of companies that left the United States and they've moved to different economies where uh, legal labor 
is dramatically less expensive based on currency exchange. And the cost of doing business and government regulation might be a lot more relaxed uh, in those locations. You know, it's like I was in Asia last year, and uh, one of the things I noticed in this particular, actually a few locations I, I was in uh, Asia, I noticed, that they didn't, and this comes with traffic, there were no, I didn't notice in one place there were no stop signs, there were no cameras, you know, the tra- traffic cameras that we have, we have in this country, see if you speed or, or pass a, a stop sign or something like that. They didn't have any traffic cameras. And policemen, I only saw, in this one particular town, I only saw policemen monitoring traffic on weekends. But Monday through Friday, there were no policemen. So, so when it comes to law enforcement, when it comes to traffic, at least in this place where I was at, um, there was little, little government regulation on the weekend, no government regulation of the traffic during the weekday. And I must say it is a skill set to cross the street on uh, some of the places I was over in Asia because it's, uh, I mean, it's the traffic goes. It goes, so you really have to be observant and know when to cross that street. Um, I think I crossed, let's see, in this one location, I crossed the street twice. No, no, yeah, twice, and that was it. Because, I, I, seriously, it's, I did not have the skill set to, I mean, it was, unless it was early in the morning, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning when the traffic was down. Like like eight nine ten and the rest of the day, I you know it, that tra- it was just no traffic, no stoplights, no stop signs, no police to stop. You know you just people that grew up culturally speaking, they know how to cross the street. Culturally speaking, I didn't feel confident in crossing those streets. Uh, there was left. Even when I went to like a larger city uh, in one location where it's got like over a million people, it rush hour was to me crazier than any rush hour I've seen in the United States. And I'm talking about like cities like New York, D.C., Chicago, crazier than that. Because once again, um, less, no cameras. Um, you did see some traffic lights, and during rush hour, you saw some policemen that were maybe directing every now and then. They weren't armed. Nothing like you see over here. Nothing like you see over here. So is the, the good. So I can understand why a lot of companies move over to Asia because it's, I mean, just on a basic level. There's less government in your life. So when you have less government in your life, you can essentially uh, do more. Um, But anyway, so much for that. 
So uh, let's see. Going back to now, uh, John W. Barfield, uh, like I say, unregulated. So like in 2018 and beyond, 2019, if you're looking for something, look for, matter of fact, instead of opening opening up a business, unless it's online, in San Francisco, California, Seattle, Washington, Boston, Massachusetts, unless it's online, um, then look for a place in those states, particularly if you're going to have a business that interacts with the public. Find something that – find a town in California, Massachusetts, wherever you are in the United States, where there's very little regulation. Like there's some places I've gone to in this country, like, for instance, if you want to build a house in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, San Antonio, Miami, Orlando, San Diego, California, you've got to have a building permit. Maybe you got to go through zoning, planning, get your plans approved and all that. There are quite a few places in the United States where you can just build. No permit required. You know, now it falls down on you and kills you. That's another story. But there are places like that in the United States. Um now we'll, we'll do a podcast on that. Uh, this is guy uh, Mike Reynolds. Um, he created the concept of earthships. Earthships are basically homes that are built out of things that people have thrown away. You know, used tires, tin cans, bottles, cans. They take stuff that people have thrown away and they build homes out of. They don't call them houses. Because the word house is basically regulated. But the term earthship is not regulated. We'll go through a whole legal thing on it is what you said is on, you know, be careful what you call things. So anyway, um, that's one takeaway from John W. Barfield. Get into something where there's little or no regulation and then uh, look for a place where the regulations, the rules and regulations are, well, few few rules and regulations or zero rules and regulations are what you want to get into. And then you can just, it's easier to, to ratchet up what you want to do. Matter of fact, even uh, Walmart, Walmart, Sam Walton, he and his wife basically started off in rural Arkansas, and they stuck. Their, they built their empire off rural locations. They can pull all their locations in major cities these days, and they would still make billions of dollars off their rural locations. Why? Because in rural locations, typically you have a lower population, and the less people, typically the less rules and regulations. Not in all cases, but I would say. In most, well, at least in most cases I've experienced. Anyway, let's go back to um, John W. Barfield, and before we go to our phone lines, and like I said, he 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 took from two jobs of cleaning houses, he earned seventy five dollars in that day, which back when he was doing it was more than he earned on his regular day job, and in a week. And then he turned that into a $2 billion company. He sold that company 
uh, Barfield Cleaning Company, something like that. And then he um, he started the Bar Tech Group, which does over two billion dollars a year right now. Maybe even you know you know what I'm gonna look it up. But it's a billion dollar company too. And now he's got five kids. He had five kids. He was working with five kids. So I, I think his kids are involved with him now. So um, we can all do the same thing. Black Entrepreneur Blueprint was created specifically to educate and inspire black entrepreneurs to launch, build, and grow successful businesses. Join us as we help build an economic power base in the black community by promoting business ownership. If you are currently an entrepreneur or want to be an entrepreneur, we invite you to join us every week here at Black Entrepreneur Blueprint. Welcome to the Black Entrepreneur Blueprint, episode number 185. I'm your host, Jay Jones, and today we have a dynamic and informative show as usual, guys. Today, in memory of one of the great black entrepreneurial titans, Mr. John W. Barfield, who is a billionaire who passed away on January 2nd at the age of 90 years old. We're going to be playing an interview that Mr. Barfield did and I'm also going to do some commentary at the end of the interview. It's about a 12 to 13 minute interview. And if you don't know who John Barfield is, he was a janitor that became a billionaire with his company called Bartech. And it's a tremendous story. John Barfield once again passed away at the age of 90 on January 2nd, 2018. And we want to honor this black titan. So hold tight. And we're going to be listening to an interview done by uh, American Black Journal, Mr. Stephen Henderson, interviewed John Barfield. And after that interview, I just want to give you a couple of takeaways and some insight into the man and his entrepreneurial journey. Hold tight for John Barfield. I started out to do something that would benefit my family. And as a result of many good fortunes and many wonderful people that I've met along the way, I have, I have been able to provide my family with educations and experiences that I never had. In a country and an era riven by racial oppression and struggle, it's impossible to find a single person who can embody those times. But there is one man who comes close. John W. Barfield, born to poor southern sharecroppers, who went on to build a billion-dollar international business, a family business. My father was an extraordinary man. He was big and a powerful physique and was maybe the kindest person I've ever known. He was too kind to even spank my sister and I. Uh, that was a job that my mother had to do. They, they taught us a lot of principles, and I've been asked why, why they touched these principles, that these were principles that were designed to protect us from God and man. Living in the South where we did, you could be lynched for nothing. We thought that Pennsylvania would be better, but we found that Pennsylvania, for my folks, was almost as, as bad. 
My father had to work almost as hard as hard as he did in the South. Like many great success stories, uh, yours has very humble beginnings. Uh, born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama in 1927. But you, we were talking before the show uh, started, and you were telling me about being a janitor at the University of Michigan in 1949 and deciding from there to leave to start your own business. I want to start the interview there. Talk to me about what it was that that uh, that it led you to make that decision and made you think this will turn out to be better than than what I'm doing. Well, I left high school after the 10th grade. I was 16 years old, and uh, when I became 17 years old, I joined the U.S. Army, and I served for two years in Germany and France and came back to this country without any skills. So I applied for a job at the University of Michigan as a wall washer, and at the end of the wall washing period, I was one of the people there that was offered a job as a custodian. Uh -huh. And I worked from 1949 to 1954 uh, as a janitor in the chemistry building. I left that job uh, in 1954, uh, but uh, the, the way I left it was uh, I had to find more income because my family was growing. Sure. And I noticed that they were building a number of homes on the west side of Ann Arbor. So I went to the builders and I said, uh, my name is John Barfield. Uh, I'd like to clean your houses for you. I can do them better, cheaper, and and uh, and and uh, on on time. Uh, would you give me an opportunity? And they did. And I made an amazing discovery. That discovery was that I could clean two small homes in a day, and I was paid thirty-five dollars for each. So I was able to make as much in one day, working for myself, as I could in a whole week working for the university. Working for the university, right? So that's when I decided to leave the university and to become an entrepreneur. Yeah. But, but this is also a time when uh, African Americans weren't assumed to be able to, to manage companies, to build companies. Uh, tell me about some of the resistance uh, that, that you encountered early on and, and sort of how you navigated around it. Well, you're true. It, it was a, a time when African American women were thought not to be able to handle complex, uh, uh, profitable, large opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and it took a while before uh, people gave me an opportunity. But I uh, stayed with the university, and then <clears throat> when I left in 1954, I wrote a book called The Barfield Method of Building Maintenance, and I started cleaning commercial and industrial buildings. And 13 years after I left the University of Michigan, uh, I was... Uh, uh, met by a number of large corporations. There were Consolidated uh, Foods, Mackey Corporation, the Sanitas Corporation, International Telephone, all wanting to buy my business. So I sold the business in 1969 to IT&T for one of the largest multiples that they had ever paid at that time for a contract cleaning service. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and how do you get from there to the Barfield Group? Uh, well, the Bartech Group, I should say. In 19... 75, I got a call from the General Motors Corporation asking me would I be interested in coming out. They had a proposal for me. So I went out to the hydromatic plant uh, there, and, and the, they, they said, would you help us find minorities and women that we could buy goods and services from? That was right after the boycott. Yeah. And I think our leaders went to the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the large corporations that we, we buy your goods and services, but you don't give us 
time you don't, buy, you don't give us any options. Sure. Unless you change that, we're going to boycott. And that's what started this minority business development program. So after a year of looking, we found only one African-American, and his business was uh, selling corrugated boxes back to the corporations. And that's when they said, uh, John, we have, a, we have a proposal for you. Uh, we'd like for you to uh, clean up some old engineering drawings for us. And if you can uh, do this to our satisfaction uh, in six months, uh, we'll continue to give you opportunities. And that was the beginning of the Bartek Group. Uh, we started that company with six students from Washington Community College, and today that company has grown to over 3,000 employees. Wow, wow. Uh, so, I mean, as I said in the open, I mean, uh, you can't talk about business or black business in Detroit without talking about you and the things that, that you have done. Uh, it's been a long time for you, though, I mean, that, that, you've been, that you've been at this, and you've seen a lot of change mm -hmm. uh, over that time in the city, in business. Uh, what, what do you see today as the things that, that uh, are either opportunities uh, for African-Americans who want to start their own businesses or things that are still obstacles? Well, I, I, I don't see a lot of uh, intelligent effort going on to start black businesses. Interestingly enough, I was uh, asked by the Detroit public school system to come up with an idea uh -huh. of how we could create more black businesses, particularly with the students attending uh, 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 high schools. And I met with them the other day uh, and gave them an idea of embedding an entrepreneurial training program at every high school in the city of, uh, in the city of, of Detroit. Yeah. Um, we really have to do a better job of providing opportunities for our young people. And, and we don't, I mean, schools in general are not teaching kids to be entrepreneurs. I mean, they, they are really uh, geared toward, you know, sending kids into careers, I think. Mm -hmm. And there's not that much focus on the idea that, well, maybe you could, you could start your own thing and sort of control your own destiny. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think has held us back as a people is we have not realized the true value of our time and our talents. And that's what started me off on my road to success. Yeah. Uh, we think that uh, we don't realize sometimes the difference between ordinary income and meaningful wealth. Uh, what we have to begin to teach our people is that... Uh, it, it's not about ordinary income. The whole purpose of working is to create wealth. For yourself. Yeah, for yourself. <laughs> and your family. And, right. uh, and, and until we learn to do that, we, we will not have the success we, we're looking for. And, and what are some of the things that, that you have to think of uh, when you're doing that? I mean, what are the practical things that you need to teach kids uh, when they're teenagers or in high school that lead them to, to thinking that way? Well, let me give you an example. <clears throat> I worked for the university for six years. And at the end of the sixth year, I was making $70 a week. Uh, then I, I started my own business, and, uh, and then I left the university. But if I had worked for the University of Michigan for 14 more years, it would have total, been a total of 20 years. And if I had gotten a 5% increase for each one of those 14 years, at the end of a 20-year career, I would have been making $8,000 a year, right. which would not have been enough to provide the education for my children. So I would have been trapped. I would not have made any progress myself, and my children would not have made any progress. Sure. 
As a result of leaving, I was able to send my children to good schools. I was able to buy a nice home for my family, and I was able to enjoy some of the amenities that we all hope and pray to have. If I had continued to work for the university, none of that would have happened. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we have to uh, learn uh, that we have only so many hours in a lifetime to work, and uh, if you spend all of that time uh, working as an employee of others, uh, you will create ordinary wealth, but you won't create meaningful in, me, meaningful wealth. Yeah. And that's what we should be working towards. I mean, at the same time, uh, if you're someone who has that job, that, that job that has a, a steady paycheck mm -hmm. and seems to promise uh, opportunity for growth, it's, it can be scary to, to say, well, I'll give this up. Uh, in favor of something that that is is riskier, and maybe maybe it'll work, but maybe it'll pay me less. Uh, how do you how do you get people to overcome that? Well, you you have to be very careful. A, a lot of people are encouraging people to quit their biz jobs and to become entrepreneurs, full-time entrepreneurs. We think that's very dangerous because most new business ventures they fail. fail right? They fail. So we encourage people not to do that, but to become part-time entrepreneurs. Uh, Find something that you can do yes. while you're still working. Yes. For example, if you were a skilled worker and uh, and you made uh, uh, twenty 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 five dollars an hour, uh, and you worked for a corporation that paid you that, um, you should realize that I'm worth more than that. Really, what I'm worth is what my boss charges for my time. Right, right. So we try to encourage people to start their own businesses on a part-time basis uh, to become, if you will, a, a company of one. Yeah. To work full-time, but to work, spend some of your time working part-time. And when you do that, you have to realize how to charge for your services. For example, if I'm a, a skilled worker and I make $30 an hour, uh, I have to realize that my employer marks my time up 150% or more, and he gets, the, he gets the, the difference between what he pays us and what he charges his other uh, customers, and that's how he builds wealth. At the same time, the people that are providing that opportunity for him build no wealth at all. Yeah. Yeah. So we try to get people to work for themselves on a part-time basis. Sure. Uh, we've got about a minute left. Uh, tell me about one thing that you say or would say to young people. I mean, looking back on your life and your uh, career, if you had one piece of advice for young people to, to sort of follow in that path or, or to forge a different path that, that, that would be equally successful, what would, that, what would that one thing be? I would say to you that the only way that you can find the path to wealth is to realize the value of your time and your talents. That's when you can begin to move forward. Yeah. Uh, not to rely on other people to tell you what you're worth, but to realize uh, your value yourself. Uh, and, uh, and to have the confidence to do that. I to mean, move that's, forward. That's one to of move the real forward. hurdles, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's not hard to be successful when you realize how valuable you are. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, wonderful uh, advice, and congratulations on uh, all your success and on the documentary. Well, thank you very much. I'm very proud of the book, and I think it was written with humility and deference, and I think there's some good principles and some good lessons, and I hope more people will read it. That was an amazing interview with John W. Barfield, and there's so many takeaways that I, I want to talk about. 
uh, in this episode, and it's crazy because if you really think about it, he started out as a janitor, dropped out of high school, went into the service, started out as a janitor, and built a billion-dollar organization. Actually, the title of his book is called Starting from Scratch, The Humble Beginnings of a $2 Billion Enterprise. So it's a $2 billion company. And he started out as a janitor. And he had so many takeaways that it's, that is crazy. But I do want to touch on just a few. Uh, one of the first things that he said that really piqued my, my interest was, he said, we don't realize the true value of our time and our talents. And I've talked about this on several of the other shows or, or a couple episodes, that if somebody is paying you, meaning if you're working and you have a job, that means somebody values your skill set. I don't care if you're sweeping floors. I don't care if you're doing accounting, you know, anything, whatever. So you have a talent, and if you have a job and somebody's paying you for it, that means you have a viable skill. Now, you can take that skill and continue to work for somebody else, or you can do what John Barfield did, and he took all his skills and know-how, and he started his own, his own company, which kind of transcended into the Bartek group. So he started out doing one thing, and then one thing led to another, and he continued to build and grow up until he had a $2 billion enterprise. So that really stuck out to me. And something else that's really important, he talked about ordinary income versus meaningful wealth. And he really hit home when he said it's not about ordinary income. He said the whole purpose of working is to create meaningful wealth. Why are you working? Do you want ordinary income or do you want meaningful wealth? And so that's very powerful because you have to think about it. He talks about having so many hours in a day. And you can work for only so many hours in your lifetime, a finite amount of hours. So what are you going to do with those hours? Are you going to work for ordinary income? Or are you going to try to create meaningful wealth for you and your family? Um, now, it's funny because he talked about being a janitor for six years. And at the end of the six years, he was making $70 per week. So he said if he continued to work for the University of Michigan for 14 more years, which give him a total of 20 years, uh, that he would have, and if he would have gotten a 5% increase after each year, he would have been making $8,000 per year. And he said he would have been trapped. <laughs> he said he would have been trapped. So what he did was he extrapolated. If I stay here, I was here six years. If I worked another 14 years, at the end of that 20-year period, with a 5% increase each year, I'm only going to be making $8,000 a year. And he said, based on his family size and his needs, he would have been trapped. So what, he, what did he do? He decided to go out on his own. He took that risk. Now, it's funny. He mentions in his interview to go out part-time. And sometimes that's an option. But a lot of times, if you give part-time effort, you're going to get part-time results. So you just have to determine what's right for you, starting part-time or going full-time. And I always tell you guys, never just go in and say, hey, I quit. Make sure you have a plan that you build up to that. And I know sometimes it doesn't happen like that because you may get fired, laid off, or something of that nature. Uh, something else that he also um, really piqued my interest in, he said, he said, don't rely on other people to tell you what you're worth. Do not rely on other people to tell you what you're worth. 
He said, realize your own value and move forward. He said, it's not hard to be successful when you realize how valuable you are. And once again, that goes back to the point is if you're currently employed, that means that you have some value to an organization. Now, as Mr. Barfield mentioned in the interview, your value to that organization uh, may be $50 an hour, but they may only be paying you $25 an hour. Okay, so it's arbitrage. All right, you have a value, and they're going to take the difference because they're not going to pay you what you're worth. The only way you're going to get paid what you're worth is if you go out and do it yourself. And that's what John Barfield was talking about. So that was very important, too. And also, not just about business, but he talked at the end of the interview about vaccinating African children. And at the time this video was shot, he had vaccinated over 400,000 African children for polio. So he wasn't just a great entrepreneur. He was a great man. And, and it was more of a purpose. Yeah, you want to make money, you want to live a certain lifestyle, but you also need to serve others. And that's what really makes John Barfield such a great role model and example for any entrepreneur. You know, we're just blessed to have him, you know, for 90 years. And once again, he passed away January 2nd. But he's an entrepreneur that really didn't get a lot of the um, notoriety. You know, there are other people out there that are big in social media and they, they got their name all over the place. He was a quiet man and he, he continued to do his thing. And he brought his family in the business. I think all of his children worked in the business with him. I think he had six children. And uh, it's, it's just a tremendous story. And it shows you what you can do if you focus, put your mind to it, and make a commitment. Once again, he started out as a janitor. And he grew a $2 billion company. I mean, that story is amazing into and of itself. And it's funny. I, I just want to read a little bit. There was a piece uh, about him, I believe this was in, uh, not Black Enterprise, Cranes Magazine or article uh, that was just out. But I just want to read a little bit about John W. Barfield and, and what his thought process was, even when he was little. And so it goes, um, day after day, I would see my dad come home from the mines. His father worked in the coal mines, recalled Barfield. He would get home. My mother would have three or four pots on the stove for his bath. The coal dust had an oil in it, so ordinary soap wouldn't remove it. I knew by the grace of God that I was going to do something different, Barfield says. I was nine and de delivering newspapers. Delivering papers took me into the better areas of town. Uh, excuse me. One of his customers who sold powdered soap took the then young Johnny Barfield under his wing. He would sell the soap from house to house for 15 cents a box. He wore a shirt and a tie to work. He went to work clean and came home clean. Barfield asked him if he could help. Well, Johnny, the man said, do you think you can do this? Yes, Barfield said eagerly. The man gave Barfield a job sweeping the floor and loading the boxes. I couldn't get enough of learning, Barfield recalled. Within seven or eight months, Barfield could run the man's business as well as he did. He saw something in me, and I was an entrepreneur at eight years old. The crowning moment was when Barfield asked the man if he could try selling the soap. Once again, the man was at, excuse me. Once again, the man asked, "Do you think you can do this?" Barfield once again said yes. 
So Barfield got busy walking through the neighborhood, knocking on doors with a heavy load of boxes on his back, selling boxes of soap. Who's going to say no to a nine-year-old boy? They didn't buy one box, but five or six. Then the man gave Barfield a commission, five cents for every 15-cent box he sold. Barfield remembers, he had shown me the path I had been looking for. I was learning to be a businessman. I have been on that path ever since. So at a young age, John Barfield realized that if you work hard and you work smart, you can make more money. And especially seeing his father, the hard, laborious work that his father was doing and the toll that it took on him physically. And so he realized at a young age he did not want to do that. So he always had it in his mind from that early age that I'm going to find a way to make it work better, working smarter. Not, he always worked hard, but he's working smarter, not killing himself in a coal mine. Now, back in those days, remember, John Barfield died at 90. So, excuse me, he was born a long time ago. So our opportunities were limited at that time. And that's why with today's economy and to the technology we have today, there's absolutely no excuse None for us not to have some type of business, some type of side business. E-commerce, man, it's ridiculous. And as we continue to move forward, you know, your children, your children's children, e-commerce is going to be just as common as, as getting up and going to the corner store. So that's something that we need to jump on, and it's worldwide. So I'm working on my new book, A New Black Wall Street. I'm still working on the uh, subtitle, but it's going to be dealing with e-commerce. And one of the things is it's not just a 16 or 18 block uh, black neighborhood in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's going to be um, worldwide, and that's what it is. The economy today is worldwide, and you can choose to be a part of it or not. So you can either be a consumer or producer and that's what our problem is as black folk all we want to do is consume and not produce all right so john w barfield guys please get the book starting from scratch the humble beginnings of a two billion dollar enterprise i just picked it up uh didn't start it yet just came uh two days ago but it, it i mean if it's anything like the interview and the man himself i'm sure it's a tremendous book and i'm sure it's a great motivation just his, his history, his life story in itself, starting from a janitor to creating a $2 billion enterprise. And I'm sure we all could, could learn a tremendous amount from that. So uh, once again, I just want to honor John W. Barfield, great black titan, entrepreneur, man, father, you know, uh, community figure. And it's not just about the money, guys. You see that he did other things with his resources for the community and for the world. So please, we definitely want to honor John Barfield. When you get a chance, starting from scratch, go check it out. It's on Amazon. You can buy it at any major bookstore. Okay. Uh, before we close out, guys, once again, I just want to let you know that every week when the show drops every Monday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we get more and more downloads. And once again, that's attributed to the Black Entrepreneur Blueprint family. I can't do it without you guys. I appreciate you and I love you. And I, please continue to spread the word via social media, uh, word of mouth, whatever you need to do to get the show out there. Uh, I definitely want to uh, touch and reach as many people as possible. 
it's funny because I get so many emails and, and, and different communications um, that, you know, people are like, man, we, we're digging what you're doing, so please continue to spread the word. I love what I'm doing. That's my assignment. I'm a teacher by nature, and I like to share my experiences because, once again, my experiences aren't just for me. They're for others. So all the good stuff that's happening, all the setbacks that I've had, and you guys have heard them on the show, some of the crazy things that have happened to me in my life and in my business. So I just want to continue to keep sharing that information, hopefully helping people. If I'm a couple of steps ahead of somebody else, hopefully I can help guide them to where they want to be. So um, if you need to connect with me, anything like real long or whatever, just email me at jjones at blackentrepreneurblueprint.com. That's J-A-Y-J-O-N-E-S at blackentrepreneurblueprint.com. Facebook, Black Entrepreneur Blueprint. Uh, Twitter, jjones001. Instagram, jjones 4 real the number 4, R-E-A-L. And uh, YouTube, check out my YouTube channel, Black Entrepreneur Blueprint. I love you guys. I'll see you same time next week. Peace. Okay, so we've heard tutorials about John W. Barfield, and uh, let's see, we're going to play one last audio by a guy, I think he's out of St. Louis, Missouri, Jalen Bledsoe, a black, another African-American male, became a millionaire in his team. Meet a CEO who's in charge of 250 employees, and guess what? He's only 17 years old. Really? You won't want to miss this. I learned at a young age the difference between an active dreamer and a lazy dreamer. See, at a young age, I was given a dream by God. We're all given a dream. Mm -hmm. And for me, I took that dream and acted on it to get it. The difference between me and other people, they take a dream that God's given them and wait for him to make it a reality while they watch back and sit. I fit in perfectly in their life, and they fit in with me. I don't find anyone who's going to demean me, mm-hmm. who's going to bring me down, mm-hmm. people who are going to bring me up and make my purpose proper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you and I could spend a lot of time talking, okay? I'm, I'm having to hold back because we could really go there. I, I live by this model of a GPS. Mm-hmm. Once I set my destination, mm-hmm. like a GPS, I calculate it. Mm-hmm. And no matter how many times I messed up or fail, I recalculate. Mm-hmm. I reroute. Mm-hmm. This, this is my child right here. So, you seeing somebody? Because hmm. I got a grandchild. You, you know, you, you, you're a little bit young for the daughter thing, but I got a grandchild. A here, you know, I've, I've, tr- I've, look, I've tried it. I've done it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned really early that sometimes we're on a boat to an island mm-hmm. with gold. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have the gold being someone who's with us. Mm-hmm. And it weighs that boat down. Mm-hmm. But once that storm comes and we have, to get, we have to get light to move to that island, God says, wait, you have gold on the boat, take it off. Mm-hmm. I have gold waiting for you at the island I'm sending you to. Okay. I don't think I ever interviewed anybody who left me speechless. That we have to be okay with failure. Don't let your setback cause you to sit back. Prepare for your comeback. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. That's good.
I love this kid. <laughs> I love this kid. This is like ice cream, you know. On one hand, I'm, I feel like I'm talking to two people, okay? okay. Interactional business, I'm talking to the CEO. Mm-hmm. Psychology, I'm talking to the person who loves people. Yes. And those two people live inside of you, right? Yes. Okay. We're, you, you're talking to the right guy. I'm, I'm with you. I'm feeling you. I got, I got Bill Gates over here and Mother Teresa over here, okay? And they argue all the time Come in my on. head. Come, Come on. on, man. I'm with you, boy. This is good. This is good. I want to tell you, those two voices will always live in your head. They will balance you. Your ability to be compassionate and careful and concerned about people will guide you all of your life. Your wallet will never get any bigger than your heart. So if you keep the heart right and keep the head tight, you can go anywhere. You are the boom, boom. All right, that was Jalen Bloodsoe with uh, T.D. Jakes. And... Um, Young black man started his own business and uh, doing well. All right, well, if anybody's got any comments, press one. Uh, the live stream number is 619 Just on it because we were, I think we talked, well, we talked a little bit about generational wealth and estate planning yesterday and earlier in the week. Uh, Aretha Franklin, um, the $80 million estate, which is, which is good. Uh, hopefully they can, her children can not fight over that. Um, but it's interesting. Most people have never heard of John W. Barfield, particularly in the black community. We, Michael Jack, entertainers we've heard of. Football players, basketball players, baseball players, singers, dancers, rappers. We've heard of them. But not too many black folk have heard of John Barber. Matter of fact, talk about name recognition. Aretha Franklin, practically everybody's heard about her. You know, which accounts for that $80 million estate. The John W. Barfield. His wealth minimally dwarfs hers. It's 25 times more than she has, but how many people have heard of John W. Barfield? And they're they're both in the the Detroit metro area. So there are other, we're going to bring up more entrepreneurs that are basically off the radar. You know what? Probably one of the ways that you can probably acquire wealth, particularly as a, a minority person, you don't want name recognition. Just make your wealth quietly. So uh, let's go to our phone lines here. Area code 314, your mic is open. You know, I never heard of it. That one gentleman that you were talking about. No, which Barfield uh, or Jalen? Oh, I've heard of Jalen. Yeah. But you know, did you ever look up the story on Stephen Hightower? 
I think I shared uh, you. You know what? I remember that name. Hold it. Let me go back. It didn't stick in my head. I remember Mims. I looked him up. Yeah, Stephen Hightower. Started off as a janitor. And uh, you went on to start the uh, Hightower Oil and Petroleum Company there in Ohio. Well, you know what? I, 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 I did. I found this website. That mm-hmm. same day you mentioned, I found this website. And, matter of fact, I'm back on it right now because uh, I'm reading something right now that says how this, this is about Steve Hightower, um, how this Ohio janitor built himself a multi-million dollar oil empire. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it right now. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I have bought into is that if you want to find some opportunity, just follow protesters. <laughs> because when they... You know, should... that, that, you know what? You're so right about that. If you want to find in plain insight opportunity that most people won't even recognize, follow the protest. If you, if you want to find some opportunity, just follow the Black Lives Matter protests and other black protests. Like when they protesting, like the one that uh, occurred when the, the woman who had been banned from the store, she ended up getting kicked. Remember that one? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So, in the efforts right. to make things correct, the owners of the station make themselves available for black businesses to take advantage of the situation, especially. Supplying the stations with oil, or should I say gasoline? So we just take advantage of the situation and go down, and sit down, and talk to them, and say, you know, I think we can provide you with gasoline, and you would be doing business with a with a black concern, and it would be great for your public relations. So that's the way you worked it. Uh, We have one brother by the name of Ahmed. He provides uh, many of these stations that's owned by people from Middle East with their security. Latest in technology where you can monitor on your cell phone when you're home what's going on on in your businesses. And uh, he has contracts with uh, many of those stations that's owned by King and uh, the gentleman's name is two of them. One of them name is Steve. He does a lot of uh, charitable work with the Demetrius Johnson Foundation. And I had the opportunity mm-hmm. to meet him. But no, that's the way you. That's another method how those that have the capability can profit, or should I say, exploit opportunities that's presented by people. That's uh, in the protest realm. I'll never look at a protest again. Matter of fact, I I've never been on a march so uh, other than a march of dimes thing. 
but the next march of protest, you might see me there. <laughs> Absolutely. Let them do the work and you you uh benefit in your efforts. So I mean that's just the way you have to do it. I mean it's 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 all about look, it has nothing to do with friendship. It's nothing to do with permanent friends, it's just permanent interest. And when you lay it out on the table, that's the way it we had a couple other uh, gentlemen, the Roberts bro- brothers. <clears throat> you can look them up. The Roberts brothers were right at the door of billionaireship. I don't know where they are now. They own uh, they Donald they black Donald Trumps. Uh, they build resorts in Bermuda, and I think down in Jamaica, and around the country. They used to own, or they still do, communication towers in southern Missouri. You know, the, those towers run the length nope. of glad southern Missouri. You, uh, I'm I'm glad you bought them because they were off my radar, but they're on it now. I'm reading something right now, and people listen to this podcast. Two brothers, they got a billion-dollar empire. This is CNN thing. Mhm. I know Mike. Yeah. I know, I know Mike Roberts very well, and his father. It goes back some time. And I remember when they started, they wanted to have a steakhouse. So they, I think they bought a Ponderosa uh-huh. building out there on West Florissant, right at uh, two seventy. And uh, they turned that building into a steakhouse. They had a good deal. People would come in from all over the place because they wanted that type of food, soul food, basically. Uh, You see one picture there where they have uh, a 20-story office building there in downtown St. Louis. They bought up a whole block. They did own a hotel there on, uh, I think it's 7th and Washington Street, right next to the convention center, right around the corner from the stadium I built. And actually, Caddy Whoppers from a shopping center, which was called St. Louis uh, Center, that we participated in. But the Roberts brothers own that. They own a home shopping network. You know how, I don't know if it's popular now. It was then at the time. It, it, it precluded uh, Amazon, where people could see Constant twenty four seven. Yeah, I remember that. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. They may be, and you know how they really got started. And I'm not sure, but I think it had a lot to do with it. They did the same thing that I just got through mentioning on the issue of affirmative action. Back during the early infancy of affirmative action being thrown on the white businesses, white businesses and also institutions, they sort of panicked because they didn't know how to deal with it. So up comes these brothers, and they wrote a business plan. They wrote a policy manual on how to go about complying with affirmative action goals. And they was consultants. And they became, it was a lucrative 
venture for them. I don't know how many millions they would have made off of it, but it was a lucrative venture. Companies, especially schools, you know, they didn't know how to deal with this. But they came and they would consult with these uh, entities and sit down with them and say, well, this is what you need to do. You need to have an HR person, a person need to do this, and such and such and such and such. So, once again, they benefited off of, I guess you can say, the uh, protest. And you can see the uh-huh. same thing with uh, when Jesse Jackson had his boycott, national boycott, with uh, Burger King. Remember that one? Yep. yep. And you remember what came out of that? The pizza, because I think Burger King owned Godfather's Pizza. And what black man benefited off of Godfather's Pizza? Herman Cain. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> all you have to do is just uh, glance through the newspaper and see what the next protest is going on. And if you're astute and understand the ins and outs, you can benefit from it very, very handsomely. I just hope, I wish, I hope Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton have somebody to take their place. And keep on presenting these opportunities. And this kneeling is doing a pretty good. Well, I'm not going to say that on the kneeling. Kneeling is a whole different thing. It's, I don't understand what they even kneeling about. I don't even think they do either. But uh, that's a whole different discussion. But I just wanted to throw those two in there. And uh, see what you think. Okay, I've, I've looked. They have... Um... Looking at their, their broad media companies, yeah, they're. Uh, I wish we would rattle off these million black billionaires like uh, we do sports figures, but that's a whole different. Oh, it, it really is. And you know, another thing that they done too, it was a serious building there on King's Highway, and what was Eastern Avenue is now Martin Luther King, and uh, serious when they was getting out of the hood. There in, in North St. Louis, you know, South St. Louis is, is white, at least it used to be. Uh, they had a store there on South St. Louis in, uh, on Kings Highway. So the Roberts brothers didn't want to see that building just go to the way. So what they done, they they bought it, and they subdivided the interior space into retail offices, retail office space, and uh, they leased it out. Uh, one of their main leaseholders was the uh, uh, Missouri Department of uh, Division of Motor Vehicles, where people can come by conveniently and get the license plates and get those transactions uh, taken care of. They also built a strip mall across the way from that in the back, which I bid it on, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, we don't work that cheap. And... Uh, they released all that out for business space, retail space also. So the Sears building is still there today. And I think that's where the antenna, the satellite dish, matter of fact, I know it was, it was located on top of the building, which was there for their home uh, network uh, shopping. And But, uh, you know, the brothers done very, very well. And they yeah, have a beautiful I'm, home. I'm bookmarking some of this stuff. Uh, I'm bookmarking some of this stuff as we speak. 
Mm-hmm. Mike has a beautiful home there across from Forest Park off of Kings Highway. And we've had some, matter of fact, I think he, Obama even was there being uh, hosted when he was running for president. Matter of fact, he was there. Uh, Minister Akbar has had, you know, a event or two there. They have tried to work with the community in different uh, levels. His brother, uh, Steve, ran for state rep. I don't know if he was successful or not. And they also served on the St. Louis Automatic Board, one or two of them from time to time. But uh, that there is an example of some young brothers starting off and seeing a opportunity, whether it was protest or whatever, and they went on and done something to it and made something out of it. Well, thank you for that, that info. Like I said, I'm, bookmark, I'm, I'm bookmarking stuff as you speak. We're going to take a, what do call it? Let's see, a short little break here, and then we'll be back.
Okay, so for this weekend here at our family, for those who haven't heard of John W. Barfield, look him up. He's got a book out called uh, Scars and Scratch. Also, look up Steve, Stephen Hightower, not, not from the Steve Hightower show, but uh, or Steve Harvey show, not that Steve Hightower, but Steve Hightower. Uh, he's got an article online titled How, How an Ohio Janitor Built Himself a Multi-Million Dollar Oil Empire. And then also look up the Roberts Brothers and their billion-dollar uh, empire. Okay, so that'll give you some names besides Michael Jackson and Jordan and whoever else. Thank you, uh, Pianchi, for those names. And on that note, everyone have a good rest of the weekend.